Good morning, church. Let us turn to our scripture in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, reading from verse 5 to verse 38. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 7, And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and... The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Now verse 10, And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be tremors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be an your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand and contradict. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that, it is, that its dissolution has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Verse 23. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear 
and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory, and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, And he told them a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you will see for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 24, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed, your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to, to hear him. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Yao Eng, for reading the word to us. Uh, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to receive from God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you have spoken. And Father, we pray that you would pour your Spirit upon us. Father, we pray that your Spirit will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hands that are quick and willing to do your will. So Father, we, we seek your help. Uh, we recognize that uh, your Word brings life, and we pray that you would give us life through your Word, and may your Spirit move powerfully in our midst uh, to raise us to life. And we pray this for Jesus' sake, in His name. Amen. Oh, you may have seen this poster before, which is on the slide that's coming up. Yep, I think this is a familiar poster to many of us. Uh, this motivational poster was produced by the British government in 1939 in preparation for the Second World War. It was aimed at boosting public morale, and around 2.5 million copies of this, of this poster was printed. But the irony is that the, the campaign was scrapped at the last minute, with critics calling the message on this poster too commonplace to be inspiring. So all the posters were destroyed, pulped, recycled uh, for paper, and only a few copies of this poster survived. Uh, it, it actually wasn't used during the Second World War. Uh, then in the year 2000, you know, at a bookshop in, uh, in the northern part of England, the, the bookshop owner discovered this poster. He had a few copies, and he put up a poster in his bookshop. You know, his customers loved it. They loved the message. And since then, you know, since 2000, this message has gone viral. And it's quite ironic that this poster that, that wasn't used in the Second World War has come to epitomize 
the spirit of the Second World War, right? Keep calm and carry on. I think many of us can relate to this message, keep calm and carry on. I think we, we resonate with this message of quiet fortitude uh, in times of adversity, and especially in times like this. I, I think this is a very striking message, keep calm and carry on. So how will we keep calm and carry on? I think this is the question that Jesus addresses in our text this morning. We are in a part of the gospel where the darkness is looming. It's getting larger. It's overshadowing a lot of what we read in Luke's gospel. Jesus is in the final week of his earthly ministry, and his conflict with the Jewish religious leaders is about to reach a crisis point. So, rejecting his authority, these leaders have set in motion a plot to kill Jesus. And immediately after our passage today, in the next few chapters, Jesus will be betrayed, he'll be arrested, he'll, he will be tried, and he will be nailed to a cross. So Jesus is about to return to his heavenly Father, having almost completed his earthly mission. And the good news is that he will be coming back. But in the meantime, how should we live while we await his return? What do we do in the meantime as we wait for Jesus to come back? How do we keep calm and carry on? You know, waiting and living in a fallen world is tough. You know, I, th I think maybe even some of us this past week have experienced some measure of the brokenness, the, the trials, the discouragement, the difficulty of living in a fallen world. Maybe we've seen that in the lives of our loved ones. Maybe we've seen it in our own lives as we continue to wait for Jesus. We should expect trials and trouble. Following Jesus means sharing in His suffering. So Jesus tells us in this passage what to expect so that we will be prepared as we wait for Him. Now, our passage is the third time in Luke's Gospel that Jesus speaks about the future. Right? The other times He does that. Chapter 12, and chapter 17, right? Those are the other times that he speaks of his second coming. And in this passage, Jesus predicts two key events. Two key events. The first one is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The second key event is his return at the end of time. And, and that's how this passage is structured as well. It's structured around these predictions of these two key events. So from verses 5 to 24, that prediction focuses on the destruction of the temple. Then in verses 25 to 38, Jesus focuses on his second coming. Am I coming in and out on the mic? Maybe the battery is weak. <laughs> Maybe my battery is weak. <laughs> Sorry, we're experiencing life in a fallen world. <laughs> Should I just go on or should I change the battery? Uh, we're on the rostrum for now. Okay. Should I, should I turn this off? We'll come and change the battery for you. Okay, thank you. All right, let's keep coming, carry on. So we're going to focus on today on this topic of the end times, right? So I think people call it the study of eschatology, you know, the study of the end times. 
And I know some of us here may be fascinated by the study of eschatology. You know, it's almost like a whole Christian subculture and almost a whole, whole industry of publishing has been built around the study of eschatology. Right? I, I think there are folks who are just fascinated by dates, times, events, predictions, just knowing what's to come in the future. But friends, just having more information about the end times isn't enough. Now, I want us to realize that in this passage, Jesus tells us about the future not to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. You know, this passage is not just to give us more information about what's to come, to kind of tickle our ears and tickle our fancy. Now, the aim of this passage is not to promote speculation, you know, as we think about, oh, what's that event, what's this event, right? The aim of this passage is to comfort, to encourage, to assure. So I hope that as we go through this passage this morning, and as we leave uh, this morning, I, I hope that we, we leave strengthened by hope in Christ. You know, we don't leave with more questions and, and speculations in our minds about the end times, but, but we leave strengthened as we look to Jesus and, and hope in his coming. I think that's really the, the, the focus of this passage before us. Should I try the wireless now? It's good. Great. Thanks, Patrick. So Jesus tells us these things in this passage to help us to live faithfully as his disciples as we await his return. He wants us to endure, to pray, to trust, to witness, to watch, and to hope. So knowing the end should transform how we live now. That's really the focus of this passage. Knowing the end should transform how we live now. So let's look at these two big sections in turn. So looking first at verses 5 to 24, how should we live when our world falls apart? There's four sub-points in this section. So Jesus has been teaching and preaching at the, at the temple, and this is the second temple which was built in 515 BC. You, know, you can read about the dedication of this temple in Ezra chapter 6. So they call it the second temple because the first temple, Solomon's original temple, that was destroyed by the Babylonians in the year 586 BC when Judah was overrun by Babylon. So this is the second temple, and in the year 20 BC, this king named Herod the Great began a massive rebuilding project to add to the size of this second temple compound. So at a time when Jesus is carrying out his public ministry, the, the building program had been on for about two decades, or more than two decades. And the, and the size of the second temple had grown over the past 20 years. Right? It was a very impressive building project. You know, Herod was known as, you know, he was called Herod the Great because he was such a builder. He, he embarked on many ambitious building projects around Palestine, and this was one of them. You know, remember, Ollie preached last week, and he preached from the early part of Luke 21, mentioned the widow's two copper coins, a you know, very modest offering. So the two copper coins stand in very sharp contrast to the opulence and majesty of this second temple. And, and our passage begins with tourists kind of gawking at the majesty of this temple. The people around Jesus were awestruck 
as they looked at the temple complex around them. And they spoke of how the temple was adorned with noble stones. Right? These noble stones were huge blocks of white marble. Some of, some of these blocks were about the size of a shipping container. You know, it's huge. Very, very grand blocks of marble used to construct this temple. And seen from afar, the, the temple gleamed like a snow-capped mountain. It was beautiful, especially from a distance, sort of reflecting the sun's light, gleaming like a snow-capped mountain. Which makes Jesus' words in this passage all the more shocking, right? And he says in verse 6, As for these things that you see, you know, you know, this, this beautiful temple that you see around you, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Basically, Jesus is saying, you know, if this building is so beautiful, it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. So the temple may look grand, but it will not last. Now, this would be shocking for a Jew to hear because the temple was central to Jewish life. You, you can't, at that time, you can't conceive of being a Jew without a temple. It's, it's where you go to. It's where the prayers happen. It's where the worship takes place. It's where you experience the presence of God with His people. And the last time the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, Israel lost everything. They lost the temple. They lost their land. They, they were put out of the land and they all went into exile. It was a devastating experience. And now Jesus says it will happen again. So how will we respond when things fall apart? Right? How will we respond when what we know and are familiar with, when what we value is taken away from us? How will we respond when the things we depend on for identity, for security, even for meaning, are removed from us. You know, how should we live when our world falls apart? Four subpoints from this section for us to think about. In verses 5 to 6, Jesus says, don't be complacent. Jesus' prediction of the temple's demise is a sober warning against complacency. And the temple looked very impressive. But basically, Jesus is saying to us, don't let a fancy exterior blind us to the lack of real spiritual fruit. What Jesus is looking for is not just a, an impressive appearance, but as, as we've heard in the earlier parts of Luke's Gospel, He's looking for fruit, real spiritual fruit. He's looking for real heart change. He's looking for hearts that truly worship Him, that are devoted to Him not just uh, an ex a, a physical outward expression of religiosity. Man looks on the outward appearance, like the temple building, but God looks on the heart. So when God sees our church, He doesn't see this building. He sees every single one of us who call ourselves members of Grace Baptist Church. He looks on our hearts. Do we love Him? Are we truly given over to Him? Regardless of how impressive this building may look like, you know, lots of people want to get married in this building. <laughs> so are we merely keeping up a show of religion or do we truly love God? Do we truly love Jesus? 
and obey Him from our hearts. You know, when life seems to be going well, it's easy to have a false sense of security and think that we're spiritually okay. It's easy to look at this building and look at our budget, finances, and think that everything is fine. Right? We, some of us came from a town hall Zoom call for the annual general meeting yesterday, and, and praise God, you know, we, we're in the black. Right? Our giving is more than our expenditure. That's great. And I think we can thank God for His provision. But friends, maybe not trust in our budget, thinking that healthy finances means that we're spiritually healthy. Right? Those are two different things. And I think Jesus reminds us in this passage that the exterior, as impressive as it is, cannot be a substitute for a genuine fruit in the heart. So friends, I pray that we will trust in God rather than trust in the work of our hands. I pray that we'll trust in God rather than the material resources that He has entrusted to us to be stewarded for His sake. And sometimes, God brings trials to reveal what we truly depend on. Trials are a difficult grace because they expose us. Trials reveal what's really in our hearts. And trials make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Second sub-point is don't be misled by falsehoods or fear. You can imagine when, when the crowd hears what Jesus says about the temple, they, they're struck, you know, they they're surprised by what he says, and that's why they ask him in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So they want to know two, two things essentially, when the temple will be destroyed and what signs will point to the destruction of the temple. And Jesus responds to them by saying, don't be misled. Don't be deceived by falsehoods. It says in verse 8, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Jesus tells them, do not go after them. Friends, tough times can make us vulnerable to false teaching because we're desperate for a hope to cling on to. Right? Tough times can make us uh, vulnerable to when someone claims promises of wealth, you know, when someone claims promises of health, when someone claims promises of an easy life, a, a trouble-free life, and in our desperation, those promises can seem very attractive to us when times are tough. And we're, 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 we could be likely to be led astray by such easy promises of an easy life. Jesus says, don't be misled. Don't, don't be given to falsehoods. But trust Him. Tough times can also make us vulnerable to fear. Jesus warns of turbulent times marked by political, social, and civil unrest. He says in verses 10 and 11, Nations, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. In verse 9, Jesus says the disciples will hear of wars and tumults. They will experience rumors of wars as well as wars. But interestingly enough, Jesus says in, in verse 9, these, these things do not indicate that the temple is about to be destroyed. Right? They're actually not the signs that the temple will be destroyed. In fact, it says in verse 9, these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. 
So Jesus is telling us that these signs of unrest, of turmoil, are actually normal for life in a fallen world. We should expect life in a fallen world to look like this. So these things are not extraordinary, but they are the normal signs of life in a fallen and broken world. I think we just have to read the news to realize that this is normal. That is what we read about most of the time. Chaos and turmoil are par for the course in a fallen world. Wars, unrest, famines, and pandemics are inevitable. This is not the last global pandemic. It is not, it's certainly not the first. So Jesus is telling us, because these, these things are normal for life in a fallen world, we shouldn't let these things, these events, make us so worried and fearful that we lose our stability. You know, it's easy to, to read the news and be quite shaken by the, the amount of turmoil that we're reading about in the newspaper. You know, I've, I've, a, I've a bit of a habit that started during COVID, right? So about 4 p.m. every day, I log on to the Channel News Asia website because at 4 p.m. is usually when they will publish the latest figures for that day. <laughs> Number of community cases. So every day, without fail, I'll log on at 4 p.m. just to see what the community cases are. I don't know whether that's a good habit or not, but, but I can see myself kind of being drawn by, by the news more and more because I'm, I'm just eager to find out what's going on because there's so much happening in the world. But I need to ask myself, what, what fills my heart and my head? Is it simply the news? Or am I allowing my heart and my head to be filled by the truth of God's Word? Now, yes, read the news, but I need to understand the news through the lenses of what God is telling me in His Word and not the other way around. So friends, you know, as we read the news, as, as we learn about all these events, I, I pray that our hearts would not be given to fear or anxiety, but our hearts would be even more rooted in the certainty that we have in the Word of God. We can trust Him. We can know that He's in control. So friends, if, if you receive a dubious WhatsApp message in sort of provoking fear and anxiety, you know, you do yourself a favour, do other people a favour, don't forward that message. Right. Maybe just delete it. Right. Instead, let, let's speak encouragement and strength to one another. So Jesus wants us to respond to all these events that we see around us, not with fear, but with faith. Which brings us to the next point, right? faithfully endure suffering, verses 12 to 19. Now, Jesus in these verses is very honest about the cost of discipleship. He says in verse 12, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Then in verse 17, you will be hated by all for my namesake. So basically, Jesus is telling us if we follow him, that we must be prepared to face opposition, even from our closest family and friends. You know, verse 16. So don't be encouraged, don't be discouraged by opposition. It is God's will that we suffer for Jesus' sake. I think the fact that Jesus tells us about the difficulty of following Him, the cost of discipleship, I think makes us realize that when we face opposition, He is still in control. 
the, the, the existence of persecution and difficulty in our lives doesn't mean that he is, he's absent, but that he's very much present with us as we suffer for his namesake. And he tells us in verse 13 that opposition is our opportunity. It's an opportunity to bear witness. It's an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is in us as we face trials and difficulty. And indeed, we, we see this fleshed out in Luke's sequel, right, which is the book of Acts. So if you, as you read the book of Acts, you find how opposition oftentimes is the catalyst for even greater witness for Christ. For example, in Acts chapter 8, it says those who were scattered, scattered by persecution went about preaching the word. And think about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, right? The Philippian jailer would not have heard the gospel if Paul and Silas were not in prison. So the fact that they were there suffering in chains gave the Philippian jailer and his family an opportunity to hear about Jesus and to be saved. Paul, because of his chains, was brought before kings and governors where he just told them about his own conversion story, told them about Jesus. And Jesus assures his disciples that he will help us bear witness for him. You know, in Acts, the Spirit fills the disciples with boldness so that they can speak for Jesus. So don't fear man. Don't, don't fear what man can do to us. But instead, Jesus says, I will help you speak for me. So he says in verses 14 and 15, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. You know, those are really encouraging words, right? I will give you a mouth and wisdom. So we, so we don't have to kind of worry and be anxious about what, what do I say? You know, do I have to kind of appear clever or be witty? No, Jesus says, trust me. Right? If there's a colleague at work that you want to speak to about Jesus, Jesus says, yeah, go do it and, and trust me. Right? Trust that I will give you the words that you need to speak. Trust me to help you be faithful with the gospel. If you have a family member that, that you're wondering, how do I speak the gospel to a parent, to a child, to a relative? Jesus says, trust me. Just, just be faithful and depend on me that I will give you the words to speak. Right? So don't, don't kind of just be so inwardly focused that you know, we're just wrestling with what to say all the time and we don't actually speak the gospel. Jesus says, just be faithful, speak, and he'll give us the words. The English word martyr, which refers to a person who is killed for his or her beliefs, you know, that word martyr actually comes from the Greek word that means witness. Now, church father Tertullian lived through a time of intense persecution you know, between the second and third centuries. You know, but he saw how the gospel spread even though believers were being put to death. And this prompted Tertullian to write these words, sort of loosely translated here, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's how the gospel grows, through the suffering of, of God's people. And as they suffer, they witness. And that's how Jesus is made famous. So we can trust Jesus to use our trials for our good and for His glory. You know, notice that Jesus in these verses, He does not promise to keep 
His disciples from suffering. He does not promise to keep us from pain and trouble in this fallen world. What He does promise is to keep us through suffering. He promises to keep us in suffering. So even if we were to suffer or perhaps even die for the sake of the gospel, Jesus promises us in verse 18, not a hair of our head will perish. No, He's not referring to the fact that we will never suffer in this life. No, that's not, he's, that's not what He's talking about. He's saying that whatever happens to us in this fallen world, our eternal security in Him is never in question. I think these words perhaps prompted Paul, the apostle, to pen these words of his own in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, friends, no amount of suffering and pain in this life can separate us from Christ if we are in Him. Not a hair of our head will perish. So since we have such confidence in Christ, don't lose heart. Cling to Him. Keep calm and carry on in faith because by our endurance, we will gain our lives. Finally, in this section, point four, trust in God's plan. Verses 20 to 24. So in these verses, Jesus says the fall of Jerusalem is certain. It will happen. And in these verses, He describes the circumstances of that catastrophe. It will take place according to God's Word. He will judge just as He has said. It says in verse 22, these are days of vengeance. So God's vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Friends, as, as we think about judgment, I think we need to realize that judgment, as much as salvation, is evidence of God's faithfulness. I think we understand salvation is evidence of God's faithfulness, but, but here Jesus says judgment is also evidence of God's faithfulness. So the fact that judgment is coming on Jerusalem shows that His Word is true. And sure enough, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD. So this reveals vital truths about God. He is faithful. He is trustworthy and He's true. He is in control of all things, even something as shocking as the destruction of a whole city and its temple. And when, when things fall apart, when the center doesn't hold, what, what keeps us anchored? What, what keeps us stable and secure? Jesus says His Word, His truth. And it is reassuring to realize that our lives are not subject to blind fate or random chance, but rather our lives are in the hand of a good and sovereign God who is faithfully working out His purposes according to His sovereign plan. We can trust Him. And it is God's plan for Jerusalem to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. 
Right? That's, what, that's what Jesus says in the second half of verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And the fact that Jesus mentions times tells us that this is a definite period, that God knows how long this period will be. Times, right? This is a set boundary to this period. And the fact that Jesus says, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, also tells us that this is working according to God's plan, that there's this definite time, and this time will come to pass. Right? So this refers to the period of time when the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Right? This is the time of the Gentiles. We, I think most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. So we live in the time of the Gentiles, where God is sending His gospel forth into the nations. So Jesus says Jerusalem will be trampled down, and in the meantime, He is accomplishing His plan for the evangelization of the world. That's what's happening now. So isn't that remarkable? That He's able to cause new life to spring forth from the ruins of an earthly temple. Something as devastating as the destruction of Jerusalem leads to the evangelization of the nations. And God has not forsaken the Jews either. As Paul says in Romans 11, when he picks up on this point in Romans 11, Paul says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The fullness of the, the time of the Gentiles will come to an end and then God will bring in the Jews as well in great measure. He is working out His plan to bring the gospel to all peoples, Jews and Gentiles. So don't panic. Right? Don't panic. God is still on His throne and He will save sinners for His glory. So how should we live in the light of the end? Right? That's... Jesus transitions from talking about the temple to talking about His second coming in verses 25 to 36. The end doesn't come immediately after the destruction of the temple. We've been living in the last days since Jesus' resurrection. And the fall of Jerusalem is a preview of the final judgment. That's why Jesus connects the destruction of the temple with talking about the end times, with His second coming because we see a preview in the destruction of that city and of that temple. So beginning in verse 25, Jesus focuses on His return at the end of time. So Jesus first came as a suffering servant, but He will come again as a conquering king. And His second coming will be different from His first coming. His second coming will be obvious. It will be seen by the whole world. As He tells us in, in Luke 17, as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the, so will the Son of Man be in His day. And His coming will be accompanied by signs of cosmic magnitude. It will be very obvious. We can't miss it. Many will be terrified. Jesus says in this passage in verse 25 to 27, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So Jesus is the glorious Son of Man whose coming fulfills the vision of Daniel in the Old Testament. 
Right? Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to this Son of Man was given a kingdom, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And this kingdom, his kingdom, will be one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus comes, the kingdom of God will reach its consummation. And the kingdom will be given to the Son in its fullness. And the Son will then deliver up the kingdom to the Father. That will be at the coming of the King. So when King Jesus returns, when He receives this kingdom, all will submit to Him. Every single one of us in this room will submit to King Jesus when He returns. Some of us will submit cheerfully and willingly. Some of us, perhaps, may submit unwillingly. The kingdom of the world shall become the kingdom of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And then as Jesus speaks of His second coming, Jesus speaks of the two contrasting responses to His second coming, two different responses. For some, Jesus' return will be terrifying. It's not something that we look forward to. It says in verses 25 to 26, On the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding, terror and dread, foreboding of what is coming on the world. If we refuse Jesus as Saviour now, then we shall face Him as judge and we will dread his return. You know, my son is in P6 this year, right? so he's 12, he turns 12 this year, and every time people ask us, how old is your son? We say 12. Immediately they respond, ooh, he's in P6. Right? Well, you know, why? Because they know that at the end of primary 6, there's a big exam called the PSLE. <laughs> right? So every time we tell, our, we tell people that our, our son is 12, they respond with fear and foreboding. You can see the terror in their eyes, right? And I think as parents, we're, we're trying not to kind of give in to that. We're trying not to perpetuate that and add more stress to our poor son. You know, none of us like examinations, right? None of us like the prospect of being examined. And, you know, kids do not enjoy the PSLE, right? You know, this sense of, of dread of what's to come, this big exam that we'll have to sit for, this big exam that they will then determine, at least for a few years, where we go after that to this or that secondary school. Right? We, we, we dislike examinations. We don't like to be put under the spotlight in that way where our flaws are kind of revealed and exposed. Friends, this is why the coming of Jesus is greeted with such fear and foreboding because none of us like to be examined. And, and, and we, the pe people respond with fear and foreboding because they know that they will have to give an account to the one who comes back. Friends, every single thought that we think, every single word that we've spoken, every single desire and motivation that has passed through our hearts, every single action 
that we've done. Friends, all of these things will be laid bare before the coming King. Everything. Nothing will be hidden that will not be, that will not be brought to light. Friends, we need to really let this sit on our hearts, right? This is the, the weightiness of judgment. This is the, the weight of, of the coming of Christ. And we need to understand this. You know, this is like taking, we know, we know there's a big examination coming. But friends, the, the sobering thing about this big examination is that in our heart of hearts, we know that we are certain to fail. That's why in Revelation 6, people respond to the coming of Jesus with these words, hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Friends, none of us, not a single one of us, can stand. Left our own devices, we will not stand on that day. So it's surprising that some rejoice at the coming of Jesus. Jesus says, if we are His followers, then there will be great joy when He returns. It will be like a long-awaited reunion of friends. It will be like a grand homecoming. We will finally be welcomed home. But friends, how can this be? How, how can we stand on that day if every single thought, action, desire, word of ours is put under the spotlight? How can we stand on that day? It's because before Jesus comes to judge, He has first come to save. Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us, and Jesus saves us from the wrath to come by taking it in our place, by bearing that judgment for us if we trust in Him. And because of what Jesus has done, we can stand before Him, no longer bearing the guilt of our sins on ourselves, but we can stand before Him forgiven, washed clean, made right with God, not because of our own works or righteousness, but because of His righteousness. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we come to Christ and we take refuge in the Son. That's why it says in Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And we'll be able to stand on that great and awesome day when He returns. Or have we taken refuge in the Son? Do we know Him? Do we trust Him? You know, when Jesus returns, will we flee from Him in fear? Or will we flee to Him with joy? I think this is a question that every one of us must answer. And this question speaks to our eternal destiny. I love the words of this hymn, It is well with my soul. The hymn writer says, My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And then the last stanza of the hymn, and Lord, haste the day, 
the fact that he can look forward to the coming of Jesus. Haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Friends, will it be well with our soul when the King returns? So if we belong to Jesus, then how should we live as we look forward to His return? Jesus says these three things to us in this text. First, have hope in verses 28 to 20, 25 to 28. So living in a fallen world, we will struggle with discouragement, depression, despair, disappointment. You know, living in a fallen world bends us over by the burdens of this life. So knowing the struggles of His disciples, Jesus encourages us to set our hope on Him and His return. He tells us to stand tall, to look up. We are bent over by the burdens of this life, but when He comes back, we can stand tall and look up in faith, in hope. He says to us in verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, stand tall, raise your heads, look up because your redemption is drawing near. When King Jesus returns, He will fully and finally do away with sin and sorrow, disease and death. There will be no more lockdowns, no more circuit breakers, no more the need to wear masks everywhere we go. We shall be fully redeemed when He returns. And when we see Jesus face to face, we will share in His glory. You know, I love, this, I love this verse in 1 John. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. You know, there's some who cannot bear to see Jesus when He returns, but for those who know Jesus, we can't wait to see His face. In Christ, we have a sure hope of glory. The second point that Jesus makes is to be certain of His words, verses 29 to 33. Jesus' coming is certain, as certain as leaves on a fig tree indicate that summer is almost here. So when we see the signs of Jesus coming, we can be sure that God's kingdom is near. It will surely come, just as He said. And our confidence and our assurance are founded on the unchanging and unfailing words of Jesus Himself. That's why He says to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His words are true and trustworthy. You know, life is unpredictable. You know, there's so many changes Changes in the life of the church, changes in our jobs, changes in our families, so many changes. And we can't be sure of many things, but we can be sure of this. What Jesus says about His return will be fulfilled. And we can trust His words to keep us stable and steadfast amid the storms of life. Finally, watch and pray, verses 34 to 36. Life in a fallen world can be discouraging and it can also be distracting. Right? The pleasures and pains of this life can tempt us away from Jesus. So beware of being caught up with the world so much so that we are caught out by Jesus' return. 
That's why he says in verse 34, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So he says, be alert, right? Stay awake at all times. Don't sleepwalk through life. But know that each passing minute brings us closer to eternity. So how will we be able to keep calm and carry on to the end? Jesus closes this discourse by encouraging us to pray. Pray for perseverance. Jesus says, pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Friends, none of us can persevere to the end in our own strength. None of us can stand before King Jesus with our own resources when He comes. Jesus says we need to pray, we need to ask God for strength and for mercy and for grace to stand. To stand. Only Jesus is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So friends, one last question before we end our time this morning. How are we trusting in Christ alone in order to finish well? How are we trusting in Him to give us the strength to stand on that day? What really matters is that day. How will we stand on that day? When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You indeed for Your Word. And Father, as we come to Your truth, as we've heard Your truth, Father, we pray that You would open our hearts to Your Word. Father, we pray that You would take Your Word and press it upon our hearts. Father, we thank You for Jesus who has come and in whose name we stand. And Father, we pray that You would draw us to Your Son, every single one of us. Father, we ask that You would remove any obstacles that keep us from trusting entirely in Christ. Help us to turn to Him, to trust Him, Help us to realize that the only way that we can persevere, the only way that we can stand is to look to Jesus alone for strength. So, Father, have mercy on us. Turn us away from any complacency, any false hopes, and help us to set our hopes on Christ alone because in Him alone do we stand. And we pray this in His name. Amen.